Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Theology and Reality Podcast, Special Lent 2023 Book Club Edition. This year, we're reading Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard, an allegorical spiritual classic that's been read by tens of millions of people over the last half century. We're so happy to be able to bring these special episodes to you completely free. But if you like what you hear and want to support the work we're doing over at the Theology and Reality Substack, consider becoming a paid subscriber. All our work is supported by readers and listeners like you, and we hope to be doing this for many years to come. A quick warning, there are spoilers ahead, so if you want to be surprised at home, feel free to hit the pause button and come back when you've read the corresponding chapters for each episode. We're back with our Lenten book club on Heinz Feet on High Places. And this week we're going to be looking at chapters 13 through 16. We originally thought we would record this while we were in a pilgrim on a pilgrimage in France. And of course, we ended up being exhausted and waiting till we came home. <laughs> but we did read and contemplate, and actually with this group of chapters there was just so much to pray with and it was just so fitting um, for our journey as we were being pilgrims. And, um, and so we were talking about the chapters we were reading quite a bit. So we start out with chapter 13 in the Valley of loss. What was your, what were your initial um, thoughts on this chapter, Josh? I think what stands out and I'm sure stands out to most people is just that this is, it's the moment where it seems she faces the doubt within herself the most out out of anything. And obviously the chapter title kind of says what she's, what she's really going through, but she feels it's interesting that this is the moment where she feels the most tempted. At least it seems to me, maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seems like this would be the moment she seems most tempted to, abandon the journey after she's after she's gotten this far right and there have been plenty of moments along the way i think where she she feels tempted to to give up but this seems to be the one that is most relatable in a sense because she seems she's accomplished so much and yet still feels at this point like she hasn't reached what she's actually been searching for and so it's it's almost like you know yeah, after after doing so much work and climbing and going so far and dealing with so much, I've still not reached the end. I mean, what's what's really the point? Right. I actually thought that too. I felt like this chapter was really depressing. And I was, you know, up to this point, kind of understanding where she's at with this like sort of purgative process within the soul. But this was the chapter. And I'm sure some of you out there thought this too. I'm sure of it. Let me know if you did. Um, At this point, I kept thinking, you know, especially relating this journey to the Carmelite journey, where is the elevator of love? Like, when is it going to get easier for her? Because she's striving, 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 but we know there gets to be, you know, there there is, you know, I was just thinking about St. Therese and how she said, I I'm, I can't do that rough stairwell up. I need to just pop on the lift and go up um, through love. And so that was what I was contemplating going through this whole chapter, because 
I kept thinking there needs to be a breakthrough at this point because she's relying so much on herself and her own efforts. Um, and, and yeah, and I think it was a point where she was doubting, but she still clings to him and she ends up overcoming her doubt with reason and discipline and, um, and even, you know, overcoming it with, with, um, a sort of radical hope in the midst of her doubts. Well, she reaches the point. It's really interesting because she reaches the point where on one page, she feels like this glimpse down into the valley, into the dark is like a glimpse into hell. Mm -hmm. And it's almost, it's almost a despair, not a kind of really sorrowful or emotional despair. Like you might be tempted to in, in, in kind of like a normal course of events where things are going bad, but a real kind of conscious despair where it's kind of a calm despair where it's that that seems to be the most real, but just a few pages later, she, she finally, she calls on the shepherd and cause she feels like there's nothing else to do. And they have this encounter. And what's really, really interesting to me, I think is that she, she goes through this process where she realizes she's, she realized she's going to follow. She's not going to abandon the, the trip, the ascent or anything else. And she realizes which is something that everyone hopefully realizes is in their own life at some point that she's following the shepherd, not because of the goods that he's promised her, even though those are good things, Mm -hmm. but because of his person right, himself. So it's not, and it's, and I think that's, that's really reflected for instance, in the, uh, you know, in act of, the act of contrition, for instance, right? Where we, you know, you, you repent of something, not just because you don't want to go to the bad place and you want to go to the good place, right? but because it offends the person that you love, right? So it's not just because of right. a reward that you might get or some sort of pain you might suffer, but because of the person against whom you sin. And so that's, that's the point that she gets to after they, they sing the song, they keep walking, um, and they talk about the altars that have been built. She realizes that what she's doing is essentially up to this point. She'd been thinking a lot about, okay, I can reach the kingdom of love. I can reach the heights. I'll finally get the hinds feet. I'll be cured. I'll be, I won't be crippled anymore and things will be fine. And she's at the point now where those things have kind of started to fall away. And what she, and she realizes that her focus is really just on the shepherd himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a beautiful point of a a more pure purgation. And that, that point in her spiritual journey is ultimately rewarded in chapter 14 with a response to that act of love. Mm-hmm. So we get to the place of anointing. Did you, did you have anything else on chapter 13? No, not really. I mean, I think just, we could probably just sum it up by she, she realizes, I'm not sure what page it actually is in the book, but she, she, in her own, in her own mind, she's speaking to herself and and she says, you know, all the time it's suffering to love and sorrow to love, but it is lovely to love him in spite of this. Mm -hmm. And if I should cease to do so, I should cease to exist. And so there's just this sense of genuine illumination in preparation for union that there's a kind of, there really is nothing but one's love for the one upon whom you rely right lacking that there really is a kind of falling away into non-existence it makes me yes 
it makes me, it reminds me of St. John of the Cross talking about how, um, to get to like these high places in the spiritual life, all our desires have to cease so that we desire nothing. And we come to this place of just love, right? Just a pure love of God and his will. And, and what we see in I'm much afraid is this continual death to self and that leading her to this point, she's dying to herself in this way and in that way, but it's not all at once. And I think that's something to take into consideration is the gentleness of our God and his mercy and compassion, how he knows each of us and what each of us needs and how it's these little promptings, these little points of purgation in each of us. And it's part of our life, our entire life journey is seeking union. Right. And, and, um, like we're, we're trying to get to heaven and, um, and so, but, but it's a process and it's just, you know, and that's what her stones remind me of. It's just like one thing at a time, Mm -hmm. one thing at a time. So the place of anointing, this was my favorite chapter. I, basically cried through the whole thing <laughs> uh, <laughs> when we were like, reading it i was just weeping afterwards i feel like too. there's two categories of people the people whose favorite chapter is this one and yeah. then the people whose favorite chapter is the 16th chapter with the grave which is like, yours yeah so, i mean we'll get to that but it really does we're feel the like two type of people yeah there's, yeah there's two kinds of people like which do you <laughs> which do you find most interesting that's, that's really funny so yeah and it wasn't i think So let's clarify why. So the reason I liked this chapter was to me right away, we get into this sort of like ski lift situation. And that reminded me of St. Therese's elevator um, situation where she just talks, you know, Christ here is saying, don't for those who don't know, though. Oh, yes. I mean, you want to give like a 30 second summary. Yeah. So so St. Therese says um, that the easiest way to get to heaven is by love. So she chose and she, she related it and to an elevator. And she said, it's like, I can strive and strive and strive to walk up the stairs or I can just get in the elevator and be brought up the stairs Mm -hmm. and to be brought up the stairs by elevator is how she relates what it is like to just say, I am just going to love. And that's that. I'm just going to love. And all that follows from that love are the virtues and the actions because love is proved by action. So it's, you know, yeah. you can get into, you know, it's not that she was giving up virtue or um, not trying to be good or something like that, but it's that like love encompasses all of that. Yeah. Maybe it's been a while since I've read a story of the soul. It's been, yeah. I know, Me too. I've, I know I've read it a few times, but it's been a couple of years. I feel like, me too. <laughs> see, if this, see if this rings a bell. Does mm-hmm. she, does she all in the same kind of, in the same conversation, whatever chapter or section she writes us in, does she, does she also, there's something about her also comparing this to being like a child and just letting your father carry you up the stairs. She also to, has that analogy. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, where it's just, it's, it really is, you know, multiple, multiple images where she's getting at this point of allowing yourself to just be completely reliant and completely um submissive to the movement of grace now right like you said obviously it's not a not a teaching against our need for active participation and a response to that grace but 
it's it's important to emphasize that that first as, first aspect, I think, which is what you're talking about here with the the. Uh, this, it's, the, you're, the, the ski you're calling lift with it the no snow. Yeah. yeah, you're calling it the uh-huh. ski lift. Yeah, I'm calling it the elevator in my mind that I was searching for and waiting mm-hmm. for because and and also that point where there's not effort. God's looking at you and saying, "Surrender, just surrender," and all this grace, this flood of grace, comes with that surrender. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about any of you, but I have experienced that so much in my life. The moment I surrender truly and stop trying to take control, and God has it, suffering becomes light, trials become easier because it's not. I'm not relying on my own self to be strong. It's Christ in me. It's Christ working in us in those things. Are we going to say, <laughs> we can pause uh, that for a second. But <laughs> no, it's fine. We'll just include it. I'm just wiping off rice cake crumbs from the children. Excited <laughs> yeah. to eat upstairs. Um, oh, and, and so then there's also the waterfall, which was, I loved, like I, I just, the flood of water, the beauty, the meadows, and then also seeing all the little, what are you laughing at? Okay. <laughs> I thought you were like, like, what are you talking about? Um, yeah. I'm trying not to laugh at you. <laughs> no. Um, but the, there were all these meadows of these little wildflowers and like little flowers. And that again, reminded me of St. Therese. And it was like, there's so much beauty and there's all these different flowers and they're vibrant and they're in this meadow. And she was seeing, I think, this consoling reality of where she was headed without being there yet. Um, it was just a nice consolation. And I think the reason I liked it was that in my mind, even if somebody is suffering so much, when united to Christ, it flips into this this reality, like the, these images. When united to Christ, it becomes something beautiful. Just like the paradox of the cross. It's the greatest act of love. And yet it is so horrific, right? Like on the ground, you're like, how could this be? And then like, and and it's the greatest act of love. It's the most beautiful thing that's ever happened, right? In, in all of the history of everything, the universe. And I just, yeah, I just kind of think about this in light of that. Not that I don't like it because it's a consolation. I like it because I think it shows the flip side of suffering when we give it to God. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. That was a long rant. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what's, what's significant and hopefully it's something that, you know, we, we sort of noticed throughout, you know, having read all the way through now, we've only got a few chapters left or this is our penultimate episode. I mean, that mm-hmm. next week we'll next week we'll finish up. So we've been through a lot and there's this imagery of the, the water flowing from above down below throughout, <gasps> right. From the yes. very beginning. And it's one of those things where you really do see the harmony of the best of ancient philosophy with what God wanted to reveal from, you know, in himself because there's this there's this old dictum right that the good is self-diffusive in other words that what or who right is Mm -hmm. good just because of the fact that they are good 
right? give of themselves, right? It's spread, you know, the, the, the good is self-diffusive. And so, you know, someone like St. Thomas looks at this and, and sees, okay, well, the highest good would be the most self-diffusive then, mm-hmm. right? And so the greatest good is going to be the most self-diffusive and give of itself and pour itself out in a way because it's, because it's good because it wants to share itself. I mean, that's, you know, kind of our definition of what a common good would be, right? It's the common good is what's best for all. And so this language that she uses, the what Mary much afraid notices the water and the shepherd speaks about the water as this self giving thing, right? This thing mm-hmm. that gives of itself is I think really fantastic. And Knowing what's coming, I think it's really interesting with the last four chapters too, because it will, this theme will continue mm-hmm. in a really explicit and obvious way. But the fact that continually, right, she from the very first time she learns to speak the water language, if you remember all the way back in whatever chapter that was, right at the beginning, I can't remember chapter four or five or something like that, and the water is talking about you know going down from the heights and going down to the lowest places. Mm-hmm. This idea that the water is coming down from the heights and watering what what goes below. So this imagery of the the water flowing from what's above down to the bottom is just a really fantastic image of what grace actually is. Just in itself, it flows from above down below. It is so sacramental. It reminds me of baptism, of course, but also the sacraments in general and how they are gifts from above, touching our tangible reality and making them holy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, in the, it's, it's really interesting. The shepherd asks her what she, what she thinks about the waterfall. Mm-hmm. And she says two things essentially, right? She says, oh, they're, they're so lovely first. Mm-hmm. And she also says, but they're so terrible. Yes. And like, yes, truly sort of like the, you know, the very old sense of awful, right? That's, this thing that's almost, and I think any, I mean, probably everyone's had an experience of viewing or coming across something in nature that has made them feel this way and has made them feel very small and insignificant, but in a kind of really warm, good way. Right. But for me, typically it's the stars. The stars. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because we, you know, it's as modern, it's like we are light pollution, you know. <laughs> I mean, your average like elementary schooler has probably never seen a star, right? But, you know, <laughs> you get out into like on a mountain somewhere and you, you know, just like lie on the ground and there's no lights anywhere. And the, the, you wonder if it's still nighttime because it just, the whole sky is illuminated. It makes you feel so small, but in the best way. And mm-hmm. it seems like this is the kind of the experience she's having. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The falls of love, right? That's mm-hmm. what they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't even want to add on to that. I, I mean, I, I'm receiving it. That's <laughs> <what> I, <laughs> good That's job. So um, I, before we do sort mm-hmm. of like move past this chapter though, my favorite part was what he says. Um, the shepherd says in the end, dare to begin to be happy for the time is not long now and I will give you your heart's desire. Mm -hmm. And it's just this fueling with hope and, and saying, even before you get there though, be happy. And I think of this with the saints 
they weren't always happy, but they were so joyful. And there's so many people that talk about, you know, meeting really, you know, some of the saints are like really holy people, you know, mother Teresa, you know, these sorts of people and they glow. And for me, like I saw that when I would meet with the discalced Carmelites, like I always said there, you know, cause I, I, back when I was younger, I was, I was um, discerning being a discalced Carmelite. And so I visited a convent and these nuns were just glowing. And every time I walk out, I would just feel like I was with these saints, like some, somebody so angelic. Um, and it's because like, even on earth, even in their sacrifices and suffering of, you know, very holy people, there's this glow and joy that comes from within from Christ because, and he's calling us to this, like, be cheerful. Don't be sour faced in life's burdens, you know, um, trust in the promise. Like we are promised something. Um, and it's just so inspiring and hope filled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a, it's a powerful line and it's, it's interesting because here at the end, it's something that she, the shepherd tells her earlier in the chapter. And at the very end, it's, it's her repeating the line to herself and she, um, you know, she misses what he actually is saying in the moment, which is kind of significant for the next chapter or two. Um, but so that's kind of, that's kind of, I'm not sure what to think about that, but the, that sentiment dare to begin to be happy. I think can be a difficult one though, because there's, there's a sense in which, you know, for certain people, you know, life has been difficult. And so it can be hard to hope in that way, right? It can be hard to hope to be happy. And so the, the, the language of, you know, be brave, you know, have, have the courage, right. To prepare yourself for happiness, I think is a really good reminder of that, right? Because you can you can wallow in your own fear of being happy because you know it's things have not worked out before, or you know you've been hurt before, you've burned burned before. But this idea of you know you know dare to begin to be happy, right? Have courage for this because you don't you you know you don't normally associate needing the virtue of courage to be happy. Mm-hmm. But I think that's something that is really needful for certain people, and so I think it's. I don't know. I, that's just, that's just something that I was thinking a lot about. And I thought that that's something that I appreciated about this particular chapter. I think that's really beautiful. And, um, and I do think though, just to sort of delve into this a little bit further, even with the saints, I don't think they were, they certainly weren't always happy, mm-hmm. right? Like, but there's joy and joy is, I, I think that's an important differentiation. Joy and happiness are yeah. different. So there's probably, I mean, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's probably a good definition of what is actually, of what this is actually talking about, right? This, mm. the, the attitude of having the courage to be happy is probably a good definition of joy, right? Cause oh, you, know, you, you, yeah. you might not actually be happy in kind of like an earthly sort of temporal I'm sense, happy. right? Yeah. You know, in, in that kind of way, but, but putting yourself in the state of be having courage to be happy if it's given to you, mm-hmm. right. Preparing yourself and not sort of, you know, making sure you're not jaded or being defensive against happiness. Cause, Oh, it's just better if I'm, you know, expecting to be miserable because right. that's how things are. Right. That's not joy. Right. But joy is sort of putting yourself in that attitude of being being ready to receive something good. So it's a disposition. I think so. I think that's a really beautiful, like, I love diving into this. 
Can we just like do an episode on joy one day? One day. <laughs> just talk yeah. about it. Joy versus <laughs> happiness. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's beautiful. Did you have any other thoughts on chapter 13 or should we move along? We should move on. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So let's talk about the floods. So then after this like beautiful consolation, right? Time of sort of the the difficulties have faded. She's surrendering. She's sort of just being brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, then everything is turning into a storm. So the floods come, right. the water comes down and she has to get herself to safety. Right. Well, I talked at some point before, I don't quite remember exactly when, cause it was probably a week or two ago, mm-hmm. but I, I think I, I remember bringing up some, some, something that had happened that reminded me of the story of Abraham and Isaac. And when I did that, I forgot that this chapter existed where the allegory is extremely explicit, where the shepherd, where the voice, actually, it's not even the shepherd, right? It's just the voice because mm-hmm. the shepherd tells her previously, he says, essentially, be prepared to hear a voice and, and to obey it. Mm-hmm. And she hears the voice. And and you know, it's, and so the, the reason for her going up and suffering through these, through the floods is that the voice comes and tells her, right? Take your desire, take your human desire for love and go up the mountain and lay it on the altar and sacrifice it. This was the John of the Cross moment. Fantastic. This yeah. was, uh-huh. yeah, this was it for me where it was like John of the Cross where he, it, so for those who don't know, St. John of the Cross in, in the dark night of the soul um, talks about how you can ultimately have like the heights of union and intimacy with Christ is to have no desires whatsoever like literally killing all the desires. And in that, then, then like we're met and brought into Mm -hmm. like our heart's fulfillment. Right. But, but this, this is an important point in the spiritual life. Yeah. And as many as kind of nice things happen in these chapters, you could miss all of the purgation that actually occurs too. Right. Cause we talked to first, okay, well it's, it's a purging of her desire for all the goods that she's been promised. And she's realizing, Oh, it's the desire just for the shepherd. Mm-hmm. And then in the previous chapter, she goes up on the mountain where you get kind of the, the transfiguration allegory and she sees the golden altar and right. she's purged of her sin with the coal and, and that kind of thing. And then here, and like you're talking about now there's a sense in which, even even the act of a, of having specific desires is being asked for sacrifice essentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah i mean that's i and i don't think it's and it's not just i mean we've been talking typically typically about this sort of Carmelite tradition, probably just because that's what we're both most familiar with as far as like the spirit and you know, spiritual theology. Well, they just are really uh-huh, big right. spiritual. Yeah, but it's it's yeah. interesting. That there's a stream in the Dominican tradition too that does the, the that's a set that does the exact same thing. Right, Meister Eckhart, for instance, talks about this, and he says you get to a point, you know, your goal, or there's a there's a sort of peak, you know, pinnacle of the spiritual life where your desires flow, just sort of melt away. Right. And even the desire to do what God wants sort of melts away into kind of pure submission where it's not apathy. Right. But it's almost just you you want to become a willing instrument and it gets to a point where it's not even, oh, Lord, let me do this specific good thing for you, even though that's not a bad thing. Right. But it almost just a I will be it's it's essentially the magnificat right it's, it's just, well that's all i was thinking of was yeah, our lady like, and her I'm, surrendering i'm yeah. handmaiden do with me what you will 
yeah. regardless of whether I desire it or not, because I do desire it because you, Lord, desire it. Right, right. That. Yeah. And so it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. I, and this, like, we're getting into the great heights here. I mean, obviously we are in the book, but also like in the spiritual life, like when we start reading about the heights of holiness, this is what happens within the soul um, in this, in the purgative process. And so, you know, we can pray for this. We can pray for the ascent. We can pray to, um, to have our own altar stones, like mm-hmm. that the Lord will give us self-knowledge of our own <laughs> altar stones that need to be um, sacrificed. And yeah, well, that's what she does in this chapter. She, she sits down, right? So she finally, she meets the, from what I can recall, she meets the family one last time. As yes. They sprint down the mountains, <laughs> go save yourself. And she essentially pays them no mind. It's almost like she completely, completely ignores them. So that's, I think that's an interesting thing. But after that, right, they hide and they hide in the, in the little cave that's prepared for them, by the way. And that's when she sits down and empties the bag of stones and, almost in a kind of bookend to where we had started off with her doubting. She kind of picks through them and thinks, you know, should I really keep these? I mean, what are these worth? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a collective, I think it's a really insightful piece into kind of human psychology, right? You, you think back about your, your difficult memories as a whole and you think, Oh man, I wish I could get rid of all of that. Right. But if you actually sit down and pick through them one by one, you can hopefully with grace sort of see, okay, I see the reason for this one. I'll, I'll hold on to that. And you can, okay, I see the reason for that one. I'll hold on to that. So mm-hmm. in, in mass, they can seem overwhelming or like, oh, I wish I could just get rid of all that bad stuff. That was really difficult. That was hard. Mm-hmm. But one by one, they they become beautiful in a way that together in our in our memories, maybe sometimes they aren't. Right. So I really liked that kind of picking through each one and her thinking, okay, this is this is what this was. And this is why I'm keeping it. Okay, I'll, I guess I'll keep that one and you know throw it back in the bag. Right. It's it's lessons learned and mm-hmm. receiving those lessons, and that comes with humility. Mm-hmm. That comes with humility. Yeah. To be able to see that and accept those lessons and God as teacher. Yeah, for sure. Did you have anything else on chapter fifteen? No. Let's get to sixteen. Yeah, this is your favorite. Mm-hmm. So take the lead. Well. I think it's just my favorite because it's, I feel like it's the most well-written chapter mm-hmm. of anything we've read so far. Um, not, not that it's something I'm kind of, you're kind of explicitly, it's, I don't know, there's probably different opinions, right? But this is the one that I feel like it's easiest for me. It was easiest to kind of just lose yourself in the story and just be kind of waiting to see what happens next. And I think it's just this idea of finally coming to the point right at the top where everything also is silent too, where up to that point, you know, here, here, sorrow and suffering don't really have an answer. They don't really, they can't really help her anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they help her down into, they, they help her sort of cast herself down into the dark when they're not sure what's there and they help her land safely but after that, they don't really have anything else to do or to say. And she kind of just has to deal with this herself. And she knows that, okay, well, the shepherd's not, the shepherd's not here and his voice isn't here. She's not hearing anything. And so there's a real darkness and there's a real silence that she has to really rely on her previous promises and her previous knowledge, which is what the shepherd had warned her about 
in um in the place of anointing right he talks about okay you see the mountains right and you see the mist right it's the mountains that are real and it's the mist that's the illusion even though often it feels that it's the opposite mm-hmm. it's kind of that you know people have probably heard you know don't don't doubt in the dark what you've seen in the light that's kind of a more more yeah. contemporary way of putting that but this I don't know how else to describe it really. It's more of just kind of a, an experience. I think this chapter. Yeah. Did, why is it your favorite besides the writing? Well, I think it's because of what happens to her when she sees this giant stone altar with this sort of shadowy figure and she doesn't know who it is mm-hmm. and she knows, okay, I've been sent here for a reason. Right. She finally reaches a point, right? It's, this is the appointed place mm-hmm. right, where she's been told to go up and she feels nothing but a stillness and only a desire to do what she's been sent there to do. And she reaches the altar and she feels, okay, well, this is, I finally reached it, but now I'm kind of, now I'm powerless to do what I actually was sent here to do. Cause she reaches into her heart to try and pull it out. And she realizes that she can't do it. And she yeah. asks sorrow and suffering and they can't do it either. And then this shadowy priest figure says, okay, well, I'll do it, but you have to, you have to give me permission to do it. Right. He's yes. not just going to reach out and do it. Right. She has to, she has to give him permission to actually do it. So can I, yeah. can I add on? Uh-huh. Okay. First of all, I just want to just sit for a minute go a little bit backwards for a minute and just say she had to make a jump into the dark. She had to leap into the dark. And I think that's very powerful, you know, and I think we can all relate to that in moments in our life where we have to make a leap of faith into the dark and just hope for the best. Right. Um, so I thought that was really an important part of this chapter, Mm -hmm. but then when she got to this altar and the shadowy figure, I have an idea of who I think the shadowy figure is. Do you? Do you want me to say my idea? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. (laughs) I wonder if we're going to think the same thing. Okay. Okay. So I think... Well, I've read the book before. So. Oh, yeah. So you've gotten <laughs> to the end and everything. Yeah, uh-huh. So I think it's Christ, like hidden in the darkness, and that he's he needs her permission, like because we have free will. And in that free will, um, she says, bind me. And I, it reminds me of the crucifixion and it's like a very true death to self where her heart is ripped out and he essentially takes out. Well, he draws out the, what he draws out the natural desire for love, right? That's what's yes. taken root in her heart. Yes. Right? Yeah. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think her request to be bound to the altar is probably the most affectively moving thing that she does maybe in the entire book Mm. right out of all the different things that she's done or asked or requested well it reminds us of being like i want to be crucified with you yeah because it's not just okay do this thing and it's you know it's there's there's it's a it's a different kind of thing to be willing to suffer what comes your way or to be willing to go through things that you can't avoid with with grace, right? but it's, it's quite a different thing to of your own free will 
suggest the idea that you be bound to an altar, right? Because it's because she, you know, she she realizes she can't do it. The priest says, "I'll do it if you want me to, right? If if I'll I'll actually do this if you wish." And she says, "Yes, but I'm a very great coward, and I'm afraid that if you don't bind me, that I'll resist. So you're going to have to do this, mm. right?" And it's a really fantastic thing. Again, it's and so she's almost. She's almost fulfilling both the roles of both Abraham and Isaac here, right? She's called like Abraham up to sacrifice what she loves the most. Mm-hmm. And then at the very last moment, right? In the moment where she actually does what Abraham does, right? In that moment, then she becomes Isaac and she's bound to the altar. Mm-hmm. And she goes through this experience where it's, I mean, obviously a very painful thing that happens, but because of what she does, it's successful, right? And then at the very end, she just falls asleep. I loved that. I think that's really powerful that like after all of this pain, like she's, she just sleeps. Mm-hmm. She goes to sleep like and gets rest. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh-huh. But she becomes, I mean, she'd been building altars <laughs> the whole way and she'd been, you know, offering little things along the way and picking up the little stones along the way and she kind of becomes what she'd been building the whole time and she becomes that kind of final form of what she'd been preparing for and been prepared for right all the way up to this point so you know you hit on the biblical roots so i'm going to go into like the saints and like the the traditions um we see with the saints how they desired to suffer and many of them desired to be martyrs and many of them desired to die for Christ in whatever radical way or to be sick with their sick parishioners or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, They just desired to suffer. This is why it was, it was death to self and also to be with their beloved, to suffer with the beloved because Um, a priest said this to me a long time ago. Um, he said, everybody wants more than fair weathered friends. And that includes Christ. He wants more than fair weathered friends and his most vulnerable moment of his life on earth as a human being on earth was the cross. And so if we can meet him on the cross and be there in that reality, um, and be willing to unite our lives, which he has given us, um, to give him glory in every single moment. So when we unite our suffering to the cross in that way and give him our life, um, it becomes this powerful act of death to self and growth in holiness on our part. So did you, who is the shadow figure to you? Because I said, I think it's Christ. So I think it's the good shepherd, but. Right. So, I mean, I, I do remember the first time I read this thinking that uh, like this, it's because she, the thing is she doesn't see who it is. Right. So it could be anyone. Right. Right. But I, I do remember thinking, okay, this must just be the shepherd again. Mm-hmm. It must just be the shepherd and he's here because he's sort of been there all along the way. And so it makes sense that he would hide himself in this moment. Because right, there, and there's also, I mean, even in in the spiritual life, there's a sense in which we talk about kind of like the the mystery of the divine hiddenness. This idea that um, this real 
this question or this struggle, right? Sometimes you go, why does God hide himself? Or wouldn't it be just be easier if he just, you know, did a miracle every day for everyone and sort of proved that oh, I'm real and this is, and this is what reality is. And now you can all believe in me because you can see. So it's kind of this divine hiddenness is kind of a mystery. And so this idea that the shepherd would hide himself at this mo- her most vulnerable moment is a really interesting one right here at the end and would allow her to offer herself. And in doing that, I think in, in hiding himself here in the mist, in the shadow, it allows it to be wholly her own act, right? Mm-hmm. Without this very obvious or explicit kind of comfort or consolation that, Oh, the shepherd's here. So I can do this. It's going to be fine. Right. It's, it's almost, it almost lets it be wholly her own act. Because where, that's true love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has to be our own gift. Right. And it's, um, and, and, you know, don't get me wrong. It's not when I, when I, when I say wholly her own act, I don't mean from herself. Because if it was just from herself, she'd still be stuck at home, right? Back in chapter one. Right, right. <laughs> and so it's 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 wholly from the shepherd, but it's wholly from the shepherd in much afraid because he's brought her this whole way and then lets her, you know, at each point you you let him, you know, you see the shepherd moves first and moves her and then she responds. And so even this act that is wholly hers is still ultimately a response to what the shepherd's done to begin with. Right. So just, yeah, it's, but it's there's really a, interesting. But free will is mm-hmm. a part of this free because that's love. Like yeah. we need choice. But like you said, I mean, she has this desire to, it's not explicitly here a desire to die, but it, it's clearly an explicit desire to suffer the most painful things she can imagine. Right. Um, so it just, yeah, it is, it is really interesting that you're talking about the, the desire of the saints to suffer in this way. I mean, I was teaching Ignatius of Antioch a few weeks ago, and he's such an amazing figure, right? In his letter to the Romans, where he's writing, you know, he's in chains, he's being led from West to East, uh, (laughs) from East to West, sorry. Right. He's in chains. He's being led from East to West all the way to Rome. Um, And he writes to the Roman Christians and he basically says, I'm writing you this letter for a couple of reasons for, and he's, and he basically says, I'm coming and I'm going to be martyred. I'm going to be killed. Uh, and you don't get in the way. Like, don't interfere. Right? Don't let me, don't do something that could get me off and not martyred because that's what I want. And he also says, and I'm also writing this when I know that I have clarity of mind so that if I get there and I want to back out, this is proof that that's not actually what I want. Right. Right. And so it's, you know, it's, it's similar to much afraid in the sense that, yeah, it's definitely what I want, but you're gonna have to bind me just to make sure. Cause I can be kind of a coward. Yep. Right. And so even someone like Ignatius of Antioch can write, you know, I, I want to be, it's, it's really fantastic imagery, right? He basically says, you know, I want to be ground by the teeth of the lions to be made like the finest wheat for Christ and to completely disappear from the world. Mm-hmm. Cause then I'll be truly a man and I'll be with Christ when I'm, when I disappear. And that essentially means, you know, when, when the, the beasts have consumed me and there's nothing left of me and that's, mm-hmm. that's what will happen. And so this desire, much afraid to just be consumed and to just, submit and fulfill the command she's been given is just a really kind of, it's just, I don't know. It's just really, really moving. It's profound. Mm -hmm. And I think we should end there. 
that is part one. We're on part two coming next week on Monday on time. And also not from France. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, our final episode next week. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. All right. That's the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider giving us a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. Until next time.